Welcome everyone to One of Two Hundred, the independent politics and media podcast. Uh, we're talking today. We've got Kyle and Philip on hosting duties, and we've got longtime friend of the cast Jack McDonald back. Uh, just a note that he does work for the Maori Party, the Party Maori, but obviously that'll come up as we talk about what we're talking about today, which is kind of more the Maori uh, aspect, I suppose, to to our Maori's kind of. Um, response and the way uh, we, they, have been treated compared to other parts of society, both, I suppose, geographically, uh, in terms of class issues, in terms of cultural issues, distribution, health networks, all this stuff, supply chains, um, yeah, and kind of history and how these things all feed together. So welcome, Jack. How are you doing? Kia ora, Philip. Kia ora, Kyle. Um, I'm doing well. Great to be with you, and thanks for having me on. Always. Always, you're always welcome. So yeah, like just to locate where we're coming from, yesterday was the Super Saturday Vaxathon. Um, yeah, good good times all around. The social media loved it, obviously. Establishment media loved it. Uh, the target uh, purportedly was 100,000 and they kicked that very quickly and got up to 130,000 vaccinations done yesterday. That's uh, largely second vaxes, but there were about 40,000, I think, first vaxes in there as well, which are going to be the more of a sticking point I guess and maybe for some of those harder to reach mm-hmm. communities that's maybe the bigger sign of a win we can talk about that a bit more as well but just in general Jack how would you rate I suppose how that went down and kind of how that was distributed across different networks and communities around the country well to be perfectly honest I kind of uh, didn't pay too much attention to the to the vexophon uh, and um I kind of ignored it mostly yesterday, to be honest. Uh, but like, I think, and I think maybe that's the case for a lot of Maori. Like, I when I first, when it was first announced, um, my first reaction was like, you know, if the the, the target de- demographic that we're trying to reach here is young Maori and Pacifica is, um, you know, like a rehash of old school telephones really um the best way of doing that um like does our generation even really have that much familiarity uh with that um and so um i don't know how i actually did in terms of the numbers um and obviously 130 vexes 130,000 vexes yesterday is great um so not knocking uh that effort but um yeah like i just don't think it's the and I've, i did see that they had people like type of waititi on it so you know that's awesome but like i'm just not sure how effective it was it didn't have a lot of reach in um in the circles um and networks that um i'm in at the moment yeah yeah i mean there'd been a lot of kind of i guess justified skepticism like we laughed about the idea of a vaxathon ages ago before they announced that we were yeah. going it's exactly the kind of cringe thing that new zealand would go for <laughs> yeah. but you're right it does feel like a more kind of maybe gen x urban mm. uh lib pakia kind of way of thinking about things um, but there were some kind of preemptive numbers coming out yesterday about the demographics being reached, and it looked really good, particularly for Pacifica. Like okay. I think the I think the most um, you know demographically representatively obviously distributed, but uh, I think the most reached demographic was Tongans, um, and then yes. Samoans, Nuans were doing really well as well. Kokala Maori, um, which was great to well. see. Was that yeah. the numbers of the of the Vexophon rather than the Vex numbers yesterday? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's part of the interesting thing in terms of how you think about different health communities, right? Because Mm. being more communitarian and more linked together, it's almost like once you get some of these Pacific communities on board, it's almost easier because the, you know, the actual strength of the community itself is much stronger. Whereas 
the kind of atomized Pakia nuclear families. It's no use bringing one family along. They don't even know their neighbors. <laughs> you know, they're not going to reach out and have that kind of network reach. I think that really gets to the heart of, of the problems that we've been facing. And, you know, I, I heard um, from a number of people that like um, Dr. Bloomfield's outreach efforts in Puriroa yesterday were, were really great. Um, I mean, I saw um, a viral thing on Twitter of him dancing, um, but, you know, actually putting that aside, apparently he stayed a lot longer than he'd had to and planned to and like actually did a lot of meaningful engagement. And so I think, um, you know, and, and, you know, the Prime Minister has been doing that too um, since um, her incredibly poor decision, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, um, to um, leave the elimination strategy. She has at least been going out to communities and making a very real, genuine attempt to engage. And that's the kind of leadership we need alongside the policy leadership. Um, and so, yeah, because I saw, I mean, I've seen a lot of commentary um, and something that we've been talking a lot about uh, is the fact that, you know, Māori and Pacific communities are relational and, you know, the way of reaching Māori and Pacific communities is uh, actually through connection uh, and through whakawhinaungatanga. And, you know, it's uh, an approach, uh, whether it's from um, a bureaucrat or a politician or um, an auntie or uncle down the road um, in person um, is going to make far more of an impact than um, any number of um, marketing campaigns and um, 1pm press conferences and you know, um, official endorsements from scientists and doctors of the vaccine. So um, it's been really good to see at least that um, some positive in the last few weeks is that's taken more of a precedence as the approach. Um, so, yeah, that's been good. I think one of the things that really struck me about the stuff yesterday is that I just wish it had happened sooner. Yeah. Um, that we'd, like, there's a very real um, kind of, online and uh what do you call it these days normal media um traditional media uh engagement uh with communities that we hadn't seen really previously it all been through the presser as you'd said and there are just some really good outcomes of that that i don't think could have happened unless everyone had suddenly been able to have this kind of warm glow of community feeling of watching people in real time, come together to get something done. Um, there's only so much that watching numbers tick up on a chart uh, can do for your, like, do for the social contract. Uh, actually seeing people out there getting backs and seeing the cuts to different places around the country and, and knowing um, kind of more practically that we're all in this together had some, some run-on effects, which were really heartening to see. One of the, probably one of the better things out of the day that, I saw on social media was uh, Tina Nata was talking about uh, one of her communities, uh, like really low, low vax community that wasn't really going to be reached uh, by the vaxathon. And they had no real um, access to vaccination clinics out there. Uh, Tairafati, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and she put up a uh, give a little and within an hour had $30,000 put towards a mobile vaccination station. Um, awesome. And that's continuing, that's been continuing throughout the day to day. Uh, I think mm -hmm. it's up over 70K now. Uh, and Yeah, it's, it's over 80. I just saw before. Um, yeah. It's been up for, as we're speaking, it's been up for 17 hours and it's on 81,000, um, which is pretty impressive considering it just sort of came out of nowhere. But I mean, Jack, like this is the sort of thing we've talked about a lot before. 
why is this up to one individual yeah. activist to protect a community? Like that's just seems insane. Yeah. What an indictment on our system that they have yeah. to fundraise through Give a Little um, to get vaccination clinics on in Tairawhiti and, you know, all, all, all credit uh, and power to Tina and the work that she's doing. Um, and it's uh, indicative of the work that grassroots community leaders are doing all around the country. And, you know, um, I don't know in the last few days whether the situation's changed, but up until recently, there were only four vaccination clinics across the Taitokido. Uh, and, you know, that's going to be, that is uh, alongside Waikato, the next areas of, um, real worry uh, in terms of the virus outbreak, um, obviously low-income Māori communities, uh, and the services just aren't there. Um, and so, yeah, like, and in the initial stages of the outbreak last year, uh, I think a lot of, um, I, I give a lot of credit to the government uh, for their leadership, in particular to the Prime Minister um, and to, to actually Bloomfield and the decisions that they were making in real time uh, uh, in extraordinary amounts of pressure, I think saved uh, a huge amount of lives and bought us a lot of time. Um, my my problem is that then I think we didn't use that time, and there was a lot of complacency um, crept into the bureaucracy after we got out of that first um, pandemic. Uh, and the the lessons that we needed to learn were demonstrated in the first um, outbreak. Um, Māori experts, um, you know, even if the government didn't get it right from the, from the outset, I think a lot of people could forgive that because of the extreme pace in which they were making the decisions. But then they had the opportunity to get it right. They had the opportunity to listen in terms of age eligibility for vaccines, um, the, the fact that Māori and Pacifica should have been able to access the vaccines from the, um, from the start. Um, I'm not sure if you'll recall, but when questions were first being put to the Prime Minister about that, which was still well after, um, the decisions were being made. Uh, the Prime Minister was just talking about uh, the fact that there were quite a number of Māori and Pacifica in the border workforce population um, who were in the first stage of vaccinations, and that was literally all she had to say about it. I um, think the other thing as well that she yeah. would often conflate is to say, oh, but uh, look, Māori's rate in under, over 65s is high. Yeah, she did that a lot as well. And it's just, it was so frustrating when we knew what the numbers actually said and we could hear what Māori experts were saying about it to see it just waved off again and again when we knew what the issues were we knew that this whole thing was coming right yeah and and I think Māori experts were also always saying that Māori and Pacific young people would be harder to reach than the older populations because um, you know for a number of reasons um, less uh, contact with the health system and with um, state um, authorities in general uh, less connection to um, traditional community. Um, and But, you know, from my personal perspective, it's because our generations have been living our entire lives under um, a neoliberal individualistic system where community has been broken down and isn't valued. And, you know, so we don't necessarily also have the, the first-hand lived experience of what um, public health um, or collective... Um, state responses in general can do to benefit us uh, and so um, that's why I think the um, the ability for conspiracy theories to run riot is so prevalent because um, like we just don't trust government it's, it's very easy to say we don't trust government but it's an incredibly deep um, almost visceral reaction um, among a lot of people um, and 
it's because government has literally never done anything for them. Um, you know, they might have had a completely shit experience in the education system. Um, their parents might have been on welfare and just look how people on welfare have been treated over the last 30, 40 years. Um, th then their interactions with the health system, if they've had any, have probably been incredibly poor. Um, they might use recreational drugs. Um, that might mean that they don't want to even uh, register with a health provider. There are something like 190,000 people, um, I think over half of that in Auckland, who aren't registered with any kind of health provider. Um, a number of those are new migrants and stuff, but a lot of them are also uh, working class Māori and Pacific families. And um, so that's just something that I think the establishment had really no handle on from the start and they continue to have no handle on. Yeah, Why and the justice system as well, of course, which yeah, again, we've 100%. spoken about before. I mean, it's just another system that has structurally and you know consistently degraded and uh, put Māori at the very bottom list of in terms of uh, actual responses and you know outcomes in every single every single level which sounds very dry when you think about it like that but even on a pure kind of black and white level it's it's just clear like it, it seems very intuitive that the people who are being constantly betrayed would expect more betrayals and yet that somehow doesn't rise to the top of people's minds when we talk about these conspiracy theories and doubt of government and stuff but yeah I mean in terms of the difference between that kind of dislocated urban Māori kind of uh, sector, I suppose, and the more plugged into those um, institutional Māori networks insofar as those still have power, whether there's, that's resource power or cultural power, like how much of a distinction do you see there? We saw the marae um, react incredibly quickly. Um, I can't remember which marae it was anymore, sorry, but when, that, when the virus broke out of Auckland briefly, and they vaccinated hundreds of people in a single day um, yeah. and had incredible network ability to just reach out to everyone connected to those, um, to that uh, hapu. I can't remember where it was based, sorry. Um, yeah, but that was incredible to see, right? Whereas you can't imagine anything on that scale in an urban setting working the same way through those cultural channels, right? No, that's right. And I think um, there are a number of things that you can draw from that. Like, so for example, Te Whanau Apanui um, have had one of the best uh, vaccination um, programs or success rates in terms of their vaccination program. Uh, they've, uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was over 80% um, of their people they had vaccinated. I think it's a lot higher now. Um, and that's where um, Rawiri Waititi is from. Um, and um, a number of um, prominent people, um, Rob Ruha, the musician. Um, and one thing that really... Um, amazed me um, that Rawiri told me is that Te Whanau Apanui still has something like 90% of their land. Um, they're one of the, um, they were one of the um, least affected iwi in terms of land confiscation. They've been affected by confiscation a lot of other ways, of course, but um, what that has meant is that they have been able to maintain um, a large level of tenorangatiratanga, sovereignty in a very real ways. Um, and because they run their health um, providers, they run um, everything. They're one of the most rural communities um, and so they have to run it for themselves. Um, uh, the doctor, the local doctor is just one of their people. Uh, she's one of the aunties. She made sure everyone got vaccinated. Um, there were still some um, anti-vaxxers or holdouts, but like, you know, um, they would continue to work on those people um, as a whole community. Um, and that's why I think um, their the vaccination rate is continuing to grow. Uh, and so that's not something that you can necessarily replicate um, everywhere. Uh, but what it does show is that when Māori are put in charge of their own response, when they're resourced to do so, and when they have um, the, the capacity to do so, then they actually can. Um, 
and so you know I think just going back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier I think the other thing around why I think a lot of older Māori or potentially rural Māori are um, getting vaccinated at higher rates is because there is more trust, I think, um, or more familiarity, more connection with um, Māori leadership, you know, because pretty much universally Māori leaders have come out and endorsed the vaccine, have been pushing the vaccination effort. People from as far, um, you know, uh, far-fetched as Hone Harawira to John Tamihere to the Māori King to um, a vast array of iwi leaders um, to a lot of Māori musicians and cultural um, figures. So, you know, the fact that that hasn't really made much impact on um, a large number of um, disconnected working class Māori youth uh, really shows how bad uh, the situation has got in this country in terms of the breakdown of community, the breakdown of um, trust in um, pretty much any um, authority um, structure, um, whether that be a Māori one or a mainstream Pākehā one. So, um, that's, I think, told me a lot uh, about how uh, deep the problems go. Yeah, kia And, I mean, as the other, I already said, Rory Jensen on our uh, People's Epidemic Response Committee, I mean, you need a different response in each area, right? They need to be on-the-ground expertise in terms of that in-between stage. Like, what the government's done, I guess you could say, very well in one way, but not well enough, I think, has been the kind of... Um, translating the material reality of people into what they love to keep referring to as like a science-based response or that kind of technocratic language but you need to break that down in different ways for different people so obviously as you say some people in cities have good reasons <laughs> culturally historically uh in terms of their relationship with their communities not to trust certain types of authority figures but it's good that that's it seems to be finally getting through now to more of an extent there was um, an article about the Vaxathon that came out, I think it was yesterday, but there was some senior health figure saying, it's no use me talking to some Māori kid um, <laughs> trying to convince him that he should listen to me as an authority. Like I need to talk to someone else and they need to talk to someone else and they need to talk to him, which, you know, is the kind of thing that we knew 18 months ago, but how has this all taken so long? Like in terms of the actual health response, the stuff that's worked well is the stuff we knew would have worked well a year ago, right? Yeah, the we kind have, of, there's we the, have like the, bureaucratic inefficiencies obviously with trade and Pfizer and all that but beyond that like you're saying Jack it's the community stuff that I mean how is this how on earth has it taken 18 months for people to realize what we've been talking about the whole time and not only is it you know expert advice being given on this for for so long is it's evidentially the case at this point as well um, and has been probably since you know the beginning of the year as as vaccinations started to be rolled out to some of these communities we've seen what has worked where we've had uh, Maori health experts and um, kind of community leaders um, and policy experts exhorting the government to, to act in a way that will meet the needs of their people. But they just, they've just chosen not to, as far as, as we can tell. Yeah. I mean, I think, the, the short answer is that institutional racism has been baked in from the very start um, of the pandemic response. And, you know, the thing about institutional racism is, is that it's at every level of the system. Um, and so, you know, um, even though I think the leadership of people like Jacinda Ardern and, and Ashley Bloomfield has been good, and even though they may have good intentions, um, it doesn't just come down to um, 
um, the decisions that they're making, although obviously they're the ones with the power. And so it, it kind of does at the end of the day. Um, it's also about the advice that they're receiving. It's about um, who's feeding into that advice. Uh, it's about um, the, the bureaucratic limitations on um, the people giving that advice. I mean, as someone who um, knows a lot of Māori working within the public service, um, I'd know just how bad it is. And so um, the um, public service um, is, of course, um, incredibly institutionally racist, but that's only looking at one element of the picture. Um, the DHBs have been an incredibly... Um, uh, incredible block to a lot of Māori vaccination efforts right around the country, whether it's um, the Auckland DHB, but also um, rural DHBs like Tadamaki DHB and Tadamaki, I think, still has the lowest vaccination rates, um, both for general population and for Māori. Um, and the racism there is, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very um, obvious. It's not just, um, you know, under the surface like it might be in Wellington. So um, the, I think, um, like I was saying earlier, um, that might have been excusable, um, even though we all knew it, um, or because we all knew it was going to be the case at the outset of the pandemic. Um, but they've had time to learn. Um, so basically, um, the, the government hasn't even um, operationalized a Māori pandemic response plan. Um, you know, and let alone uh, what you're talking about in terms of what um, Dr. Jansen was recommending in terms of uh, regional response plans or, or even more localised response plans at the very community level. That's what we really actually need. Um, and it's not too much to ask for. Like, you've got the huge bureaucracy of the state um, and they had months to do it. Um, if they had actually sat down at the start, um, even if that was at the um, after we had got out of the worst of the pandemic last year, the outbreak last year, um, sat down... Um, essentially given power to Māori to de design their response. Um, if the communications around the vaccination program, for example, had been led by Māori from the outset, which they still aren't being really, um, then I think the picture would be very different. Um, the fact that they haven't done that, um, combined with recent decisions like abandoning the elimination strategy, um, I think really constitutes um, one of the most significant breaches of the Treaty of Waitangi in the history of this country. And um, whether or not uh, we see that in terms of, I, I sincerely hope that we don't see that in terms of um, Māori deaths um, from COVID. I don't, I, I sincerely hope that um, we are able to stave off the worst of this pandemic, but regardless of whether we do or not, um, the government has put us in this situation of extreme risk and um, that's something that can never be forgiven. Um, and, you know, that is the responsibility of the Labour government and of the Prime Minister and of the COVID response minister and of the Director General of Health. But it's also the responsibility of the public service at all levels. And that's something that we can't lose sight of, lose sight I, of as well. I think that comes back to what you're saying near the beginning when we were talking about the Vaxathon and some of the, um, you know, the money being given to this Give a Little campaign, right? You know, it's, it's up of 80K now, but think about that alongside the billions given by central government. Um, like, we, we knew all these places needed to be reached somehow. Just, like, even if you're just giving them the money, that that would have made a significant difference. They didn't need to do all the planning. They didn't need to design all the policies. There are Maori authorities that exist who want to get this done. Um, yeah. And there are people in the community and there's leadership in the community that wants to get that done. And uh, Tina Nata has, has done it in this particular instance. 
um, and has, um, you know, got something up and running for her community. But there's no reason why that had to happen now or why that, why it had to come on the back of, you know, a nationwide publicity campaign. Yeah, exactly. And there's been some uh, willing to, willingness to move on the part of government in terms of resources and money, um, even though we're still in this bad situation where um, communities are having to crowdfund vaccination centres, um, there has been some willing to willingness to succumb to pressure. Um, so, you know, they, they did announce an increase in final water provider funding, uh, even though that came much too late. Uh, and there has been some behind the scenes um, movements as well that um, have loosened up some of the purse strings. But at the end of the day, there has been no willingness to move in terms of sharing power. Um, and that fundamentally is, I think, the problem. And that's why um, we really need um, constitutional transformation sooner rather than later, because uh, there has been no ability uh, for Māori to actually make the decisions or veto the incredibly bad decisions that the government has been making. So one of the things that I think is essential um, moving forward is that um, Te Ropu Whakakaupapa Uruta, the Māori Pandemic Response Group, has actually given uh, statutory powers um, that they're able to um, veto the decisions of the Ministry of Health, but also um, have power to make the decisions over the Māori response. Uh, and also, you know, I think um, crucially, uh, there needs to be the data sharing. So that's another big part of this picture. So um, the Māori um, uh, response leaders have been able to basically, um, so for example, the final order providers, they have access to NHI data, but they don't have access to it um, continually refreshed um, or at the level of, um, um, the level that um, the government's Pākehā um, contractors like home care medical do. Um, so it's partly just because home care medical have had the, um, the time and the resources and the capacity um, to really crunch that data down to a, like a street by street level. Uh, whereas the final water providers haven't had the um, capacity to do that. Um, yet the home care medical and the government is refusing to share that, um, that broken down data uh, because they say it's a privacy issue, even though um, the final water providers still have access to all of the same raw data. Um, so it's an incredibly crazy situation um, of Pākehā bureaucracy where they could easily just hand over that data. Uh, and what they really need is some kind of um, um, platform um, of real-time information and data sharing um, that is um, joined up between the Ministry of Health the iwi responses, um, the Māori pandemic response group, and the final water provider. That goes beyond just like bureaucratic stifling. That's directly undermining the national health response. 100%. Yep. That's obscene. So they, to the point where um, John Tamihere and the, um, the final water um, commissioning agency are taking them to court. They're, they're, they're launching civil action to try and um, get access to this data. Um, and you know, the fact that um, Māori providers who are literally leading the vaccination efforts, like Te Whanau Waipareira, they're vaccinating everyone. They're vaccinating Pākehā and other ethnicities more than they are Māori, um, and yet they're having to go to court to get access to the data to actually reach out to Māori on a street-by-street -street level, because what they want to do is to actually be able to um, know who is vaccinated at any given moment so that they can then reach out 
with personal contact to those people um, because that's what's needed for Māori, obviously. Um, and that's what they've been saying for a long time. Um, and yet, um, yeah, the government uh, and Home Care Medical, this private fucking company, is refusing to hand over this data. That's disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's fairly like it's fairly standard in terms of what we see in that kind of suspicious, um, overly kind of cynical um, attitude that government and private corporations have when they're ter- when they're dealing with Maori interests, right? It's sad, but they it's like that's Maori. that's what you have to expect. They don't trust it. That's it. That's it. And like Jack talks power about power and trust. Yeah, exactly. And Jack's talking about power, but really on the ground, what that comes down to is decision making ability, right? So who got to make the decision about the elimination strategy? Who gets to make the decision about who um, is being funded to help all these people? It's this weird kind of jealous guarding of something that needs to be shared as a community. And they just don't function like that. Like that's that's how the, the state's been set up. It's part neoliberalism, part colonialism, part capitalism, all everything's kind of swirling in there, I guess. And it's this like toxic uh, day-to-day sludge that we have to wade through. But yeah, yeah. so like Jack, for example, um, I can hear you're pretty pissed about the elimination U-turn, um, understandably, but you could, could use that as like a jumping off point to kind of blue sky what a different decision-making structure would look like. Like you're talking about um, a Maori health committee having explicit statutory powers, for example. Like how could that work? I think it could work in a number of ways. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that um, the Maori party has also said is that the decisions of the Minister of Health and the Director General of Health should have the explicit sign-off of the Minister of Maori Development. Um, I think that's one small thing. Um, it's not necessarily, it's certainly not all we need to do, but it would, I think, help. The other thing is that, um, you know, um, we are in this phase at the moment where um, the government has um, agreed um, to the establishment of the Māori Health Authority, which is fantastic, something that um, the Party Māori and Māori health leaders were pushing for for a long time. It was a concept designed by Tom Mason Jury. And um, the members have even been appointed um, to that now, um, really fantastic members. Uh, and I was really pleased to see um, the appointment of those members uh, and all credit to um, the decision makers um, for making those appointments. Um, but it's really important that the government expedite the process of establishing the Māori Health Authority. Because if the Māori Health, and it really matters what that looks like and the powers um, and the resources that it's given. Crucially, I think the setup at the moment is that resources that go to the Māori Health Authority will flow through the Ministry of Health first, essentially giving the Pākehā bureaucracy, again, the decision-making authority over the funding. So mm. uh, from, from the start, from the outset, that money should be directly funded um, through the budget, um, and um, the Māori Health Authority should have its own vote, essentially, in the budget. Um, but, um, yeah, if they're able to get the Māori Health Authority up and running really quickly, then that's the, the best outcome, to be perfectly honest. But in the meantime, they should be giving um, Te Rōpū Whakakaupapa Urutā, which is led by um, people like Dr Aori Jensen and Dr Sue Kringle, um, statutory powers. Um, and to be honest, they probably should be doing this with... Um, I mean, this could be argued, but with, with, with public health officials in general, but but essentially um, that would then mean that, um, depending on how you did it, that decisions like the elimination strategy would have to have um, the approval of that group, um, as well as, um, or at least that their advice would be given equal weighting to the advice of the Ministry of Health. Um, and... Um, yeah, currently that's certainly not happening. Um, the Māori um, health experts haven't been listened to from the outset. Um, one thing that I've been saying is that 
the, the, the public health experts, I think the government stopped listening to them when they decided, for whatever reasons they decided it, and I can only speculate as to what those reasons were, to abandon the elimination strategy. Um, but they haven't been listening to Māori public health experts at all. Um, and that's evident um, and evidential, as Kyle said now, um, in the fact that we're seeing such lower Māori vaccination rates. Um, because, you know, um, when they abandoned the elimination strategy, Māori, young Māori had essentially only had just over six weeks um, to get vaccinated. Um, when um, I think was it group three that young Māori were in, um, that was, um, so that's me, essentially my demographic. Uh, when uh, group three became available, I received no notification whatsoever. Um, so, you know, like, and I'm, I've certainly interacted with the health system um, and with government a lot. Um, and so if they're not even contacting me uh, to let me know that um, I'm able to be vaccinated, then, you know, there's, there's a fundamental problem in the system. Um, and um, so I obviously went and got vaccinated off my own, um, of my own um, consumption of, of media and all the rest of it. But my point is, is that, um, yeah, like, let alone we didn't have enough time, we also weren't contacted, and yet they expected us and then started blaming us for not being vaccinated um, as their excuse um, for abandoning elimination. So to speak very quickly, more directly to that decision, like, I just, um, I mean, I don't know what much more uh, uh, there is to say about it, really, um, other than the fact that, um, I think that's when, um, to speculate, that's when Labour um, caved to um, the very strong capitalist forces, whether it was from the Auckland business class, which we saw in terms of the advocacy of Phil Goff, um, whether it was also um, Grant Robertson's um, comments um, that uh, around debt and the fiscal burden of the response, um, which I think was also a subtle indication, um, or, you know, I can't, you know, the rest is speculate, all of it's speculation, um, but the government hasn't explained itself, so it's only leaving us to speculate because they yeah. haven't released any terms of um, just, criteria around how they made that decision. I think, and we've seen their language move to more of a, um, oh, we've taken advice on board, as opposed to we are following the advice of epidemiolo uh, epidemiologists. And alongside that, you know, you've had the, um, the baying of uh, mainstream media since the outset uh, via opinion columnists, but now that those are aligned with some of the government decisions, you've also seen those same opinion, opinion columnists and even some like, uh, like political editors who are taking aim squarely at epidemiologists who have been like lauded as national heroes up until this point, uh, who, are, who are now disagreeing for, for the first time in a lot of instances with the government's approach. Yeah, exactly. I think the establishment just decided um, for a comp for a confluence of reasons um, that uh, I just mentioned and that you also just mentioned in terms of the media pressure, I think John Key's uh, intervention, that essentially um, the game was up on elimination and that it, that it was costing the country too much um, and that Pākehā vaccination rates were at high enough level for them to risk it. Um, and so they basically just risked Māori and Pacifica lives um, for the sake of their um, back pockets. And I think that's a disgusting decision that will um, hopefully, um, when the history books are written, um, be explicitly um, revealed um, for what it is. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's been some discussion around the John Key stuff. I, I don't think it was his stuff in particular. I, I don't think he has any real sway. I think it was indicative of the, um, 
the sense and the room. Like John Key's not going to do anything unless he thinks there's support for it already. Um, well, if anything, someone asked him to do it. Yeah. But, you know, like, you know, I work with a lot of these people and I can just imagine um, that, like, you know, they would they would start panicking. Um, like, you know, he was in every he was in every um, print paper. He was in every, um, you know, um, broadcast um, platform for an entire week. He was for an entire week, and th- and they were probably seeing some slight moves in the opinion polls at that time as well. Like, this is how these people operate. Like, and they actually care about that far more than they do around the advice of the public health. Um, experts and the epidemiologists it was just um, suiting them because up until that point the um, the polls and um, you know had been favoring them the business leaders had been on side because there wasn't they didn't see any other alternative and they weren't vaccinated um, and so um, but yeah so I think you've seen this fundamental shift for those reasons but um, you know I just really hope that um, soon, um, probably not because we don't have any proper investiga- investigative journalism in this country, but that it will actually be. <laughs> That's think, so true. That's um, so sad and so true. I mean, yeah, I was thinking that when you were saying when the history books are being written, I was like, well, who's going who's gonna <laughs> to know these things? Like, yeah. When are these history books coming out? It's it's a sad stage. I eh? think but, like yeah. we've, we've got a couple of people who are doing some pretty good um, stuff around this. So Mark Dalda has had some good yeah, insight. Um, but as you say, like the the general kind of morass, um, there hasn't been much there around this. And it feels like there's so much there to get stuck into. Um, but I think it's something that people either don't realise or they lose sight of in the New Zealand context, uh, is that public opinion does matter to uh, our decision makers, but only insofar as it's part of a poll. You know, they've got this whole system designed and who they're talking to within their own class, within political, media, and business class, has far more weight to them uh, than, mm. you know, what the, the general public genuinely feel. Um, yeah, it's, it's how it's presented. With, right? it yeah. is. I mean, you can still have record amounts of support for a government elimination strategy, like 60 to 80% on different polls, um, including left-wingers, right-wingers, every demographic. Um, except I think ACT voters were the only <laughs> the only demographic that was majority not in favour of what the government was doing. Um, and yet still, it just takes a few like business class and um, careerist journos and pundits to, you know, sink such a popular strategy. Incredible, really. Well, it, it is. And that's what I was about to say. It's like, you know, from a narrative perspective, like I can't believe how I can't believe how much Labour have damaged themselves. Like, you know, because for over a year, they've pushed this line that, you know, public health, um, matters above all else that the Ministry of Health um, can't be wrong, you know, the whole one source of truth like thing. Um, and, um, and, and you know, to, and, and to the point where, you know, to this day, their um, online hyperpartisan supporters are still saying that they're in the elimination strategy because that's how <laughs> much they, they baked in um, the, the messaging around the public health response and then to suddenly abandon that with no um, warning really at all um, let alone justification um, is completely bizarre and I think they've really shot themselves in the foot in terms of the next election because um, you know it's going to just get worse and unravel more and then the one thing that they had to campaign on which was the COVID response is now no longer really a successful thing that they can actually talk about. Yeah I'm still hoping like not for political reasons just for health reasons that we get lucky again and I, yeah. I think there's 
there's some chance of that. Um, if if like vaccinations can continue to go up steadily, um, but you certainly, I mean, but, yeah. The issue is that where where does where do those people go? Right, um, the Greens have have barely um, been visible uh, for the last eighteen months. Certainly haven't made any of the critiques of the government that I would have hoped to have seen. A little bit more since the elimination switch, but not as loudly um, as they perhaps should have. The Party Māori is, of course, like probably the left-wing alternative at this point uh, to, to a Labour government in a lot of ways, if only on the basis of the policies that they've been supporting in, in regards to the health response. Um, and do you see them getting mainstream cut through in the, the same way that uh, um, one of the other MMP parties have? I mean, no, probably not, to be honest, as much as we um, we try um, as a small team to get to get cut through. I mean, um, most in terms of in terms of the mainstream, most of the advocacy that Te Party Māori has been doing around the pandemic for the last year and a half has been ignored, to be perfectly honest, um, with some with some exceptions. And, you know, there, there there's been some good reporting. But like, um, you know, I just think about the fact that to party Māori um, leadership, whether it's the co-leaders, whether it's the vice president, like they have literally been on the front line of the pandemic response this whole time. Um, and like, you know, I guess communicating with the mainstream media hasn't been our priority as well, to be perfectly honest. Like our priority has been trying to communicate directly with Māori, with our people. Um, and, you know, uh, to some success, su success uh, we've been doing directly that directly through social media um, and through, um, actually just getting out on the ground as much as been possible um, but yeah no I, I, I don't um, to be honest like I, I really hope that we and I think we will increase our presence in the next parliament in terms of Māori seats but um, and I think we are gaining some support from Tangata Tiriti as well and non-Māori but uh, I don't um, think that um, we will be able to um, get the support of you know, the so-called the so lockdown liberals or whatever who will um, support any um, strong public health measure, um, um, perhaps unless it's um, advocated by Māori health experts or the Māori party. Um, but also, <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I don't want to sound um, depressing, but my personal view is that I think it's going to be very hard to get Māori vaccination rates above 95%, um, like Dr Jansen and all the Māori health experts are, um, are saying is needed. Um, still possible, but, like, I just think that um, if, if, even if we are going to get to 95%, it's going to take a long time, to be perfectly honest. And I think that we need to start um, talking about more than just vaccinations. I think we need to start talking about holistic well-being, um, how um, we put pressure on the government to, um, and obviously right now, vaccinations are the best protection against COVID, so I'm not trying to say anything otherwise. But how do we put the pressure on the government to actually invest in preventative health, to invest in mental health, um, to support whānau well-being um, in the ways that is actually going to mean that we have um, the immune systems and the health um, across our population to survive not just this pandemic, but, you know, the, the, the prospect of ongoing um, um, and new pandemics or new variants. Um, you know, we just don't have, we can't see the end of this. And so we have to actually start looking um, across the board, not just at one particular health response. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's something really that's been fun. mentioned again and again. Um, and every time someone brings it up, I'm like, wow, it's even more the case now, which yeah. is this pandemic, um, almost more than any crisis in the last 
50 years um, has shown the divides in our, in our society on a class basis. Yeah. So we know just more recently with the, the latest um, Delta outbreak, which has been ongoing in Auckland for um, just over two months now, uh, it's spreading through households, you know, poorly ventilated, overcrowded households. You know, that, that doesn't happen unless you've got people that are, you know, underemployed um, on, on a minimum wage at best, uh, living in substandard housing. Yeah. It's, there's a whole range of stuff which has led to the point where the government needed to undertake the strategy they had to anyway, um, in terms of the housing market, in terms of the uh, dilapidation of the health system, um, and then, you know, the the way that we treat uh, Indigenous and Pacific peoples here as well. You know, all of these are, are, have combined to create a situation through which we did have one of the best health responses in the world, but by necessity, because if it had got loose initially, we just, everything would have collapsed. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, ICU beds, all sorts. Yeah, exactly. They need to, they need to maintain the market somehow, right? Spending exactly. must continue. That's what, to me, it comes down to is that, like, everything seemed possible at the start of the, uh, uh, start of the pandemic um, because um, this seemed like the perfect opportunity to actually start to unravel some of um, the terrible things that we've been doing to um, ourselves over the last 30, 40 years or the last 200, 300 years. Um, and yet, um, I guess we should have known better, really. Um, Labour Labor knew that as well. They knew that people felt that way. And they, they had yeah. a whole like branding campaign around it with Build Back Better. People were like yelling out Red Robo, um, oh, you know, okay. you know right. st stuff like that. And, yeah. you know, some of that is, is optimism and hope. And I, I can't fault people for that. They, we, we all hope that the government would change generational track. But it's very clear now that that was just branding oh 100 percent. it was hope without action and 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 like yeah no that that pissed me off a lot because it was very obvious that what they were doing at the time and you know as many people were saying was um just uh, pumping a lot of money into um keeping um businesses and corporates afloat um there was no direct support there was no rental support there was no housing support there was there was nothing in terms of um, what ordinary people needed. Telling landlords uh, to be kind, right? Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're, they're borrowing all of that money off themselves, off the Reserve Bank. They're printing money, um, you know, and it's like I saw some advocacy from Russell Norman around the fact that, like, why are you so worried about paying back this money? Write it off. You owe it to yourself. But that just yeah. really exposes how fundamentally broken um, our system is and how it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, and, like, surely this would be the moment to try and actually have a discussion around that to actually talk about um, how can we, you know, lockdown is a perfect opportunity. Everyone's at home, forced to be at home. Like surely this is the opportunity to actually start to realize that um, the way that we have structured our society is just killing us. And, you know, like for me, a big part of lockdown that like I really still hold on to hold on to is that kind of response, that collective nationwide response at such a huge scale is the kind of thing that we need to be implementing for other crises like climate change. Like, and obviously um, it needs to be done in a smart way and it's not about everyone just staying at home all the time, but actually um, how do we um, motivate people at that scale to actually um, take part in a collective response?
uh, to bring down emissions like you know like that's killing us as well and so um i i just really think we have to yeah relook at the way even even the left perhaps especially the left myself all of us around how we actually challenge the system because are we just um continuing to validate it as well yeah how do we how do we give the team of five million six million a new mission right that's yeah. that's definitely the that's the big project and yeah i mean compare the way the government uh interacted with society and kind of did their comms job in the first lockdown with how they have now this time there hasn't even been the the meager kind of support that they had last time financially. Um, you know, they've, they've still got to keep having the um, wage subsidy. Otherwise business yeah. would collapse and people wouldn't be able to pay when, their rent and therefore mortgages. When Cipollone but, came out and said, oh, we, we're not going to do the winter energy payment because it's not really winter yeah. anymore. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's Excuse me? <laughs> it's a good example, right? Yeah. yeah. No, that's like, pretty sad. Or how, or how Cipollone came out and announced like a disability um, like um, uh, vaccination support group um, like just one week ago, like and then they and they're still blaming people for not being vaccinated and that you know, Maori um, are, are the most um, disproportionately um, um, living with with disability, uh, and so you know it's like again it's like we actually not really getting underneath why Māori vaccination levels are so low, but it's su such a huge range of factors that the government um, is only really now starting to try to address because of so much pressure over so so many um, months. Yeah, the really, like, the, the cynicism, the, the particular cynicism that has been just fucking me off so much is the... And, and I'll, I'll say some... Some kudos to Ardern um, and Bloomfield for pushing back on this when, when media have directly asked them about it. Um, but the coded language being used around uh, gangs um, as, as being the reason why Māori aren't vaccinated or as being like the, um, the reason that it's spreading. Like we all know what you're fucking saying, folks. Um, and then the overwhelming focus on figures like uh, Brian Tamaki, who, yeah, yeah, clearly he shouldn't be doing what he's doing, but there are like a couple of other mega churches run by rich white guys that are involved in this as well. Mm -hmm. um, so you have Māori being put at front and centre of, of the reasons why um, these, uh, the spread um, is continuing. And it's... Yeah, that's right. It seems to come down to um, gangs and sex workers seems to be the official position on who we're blaming now for um, the spread of COVID, <laughs> notwithstanding the fact that, you know, you know, we had that whole Wanaka couple and all of those people, you know, rich people who were breaking lockdown over a long time. And, you know, Māori checkpoints exposed that as well. Like yeah. the amount of people who were really traveling to their holiday homes in the Coromandel or um, wherever else. And so, um, yeah, like, I, I, I mean, and also, you know, like there's been such a huge underreporting and just lack of attention on the amount of businesses that have been forcing their staff to continue to work um, under alert level restrictions where they shouldn't be. And there just really hasn't been that level of accountability um, on the private sector. Yeah. And I think um, a really clear uh, juxtaposition, as you mentioned, the Wanaka couple, uh, who, who within like hours had opinion writers like saying, oh, yeah. forgive them, um, you know, in major newspapers. Yeah. And then compared to Harry Tam, um, who media gave a, 
a morning breakfast slot to Winston Peters to go on television and defame him, which they then had to pull the videos of, and there's a court case. Yep. And then like, that's the difference. The, and, and amplified the accusations at the 1pm presser and all the rest of it. Like, I think that was shameful what uh, journalists did um, in relation to that. And, you know, I didn't see any level of contrition or apology from any of them um, in relation um, to that absolute defamation um, directed at Harry Tam based on absolutely no evidence. Like, yeah. just shameful. Um, and then, I, you know, like, just alongside that, this, this continual um, reference to South Auckland um, mm. as being you know, full of criminals or whatever the media wants to say these days. Um, when they're the ones carrying the entire response. Oh, yeah, exactly. You know, you know, there's a lot of things we haven't spoken about today, um, like in terms of the, the specific advice that the government did ignore um, from Māori experts, but like the thing that they based MIQs in South Auckland, for example, like even that alone, it's just, it was guaranteeing from the start that the outbreak would be centred on Māori and Pacific communities. And I understand some of the logic behind it around being near the airport and all the rest of it, but still. Um, and um, so they've had, they've had so long now and they haven't, they haven't really um, progressed purpose-built MIQ facilities outside of population centres or anything like that. And it's just one example of how um, they have failed um, fundamentally, comprehensively, uh, to respond in a way that um, would actually cater to Māori and Pacific communities. Well, likewise, the, the South Auckland workforce, who makes up most of our, our front line, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's offensive. And, and, you know, it's... As these people are putting themselves at risk, um, living in overcrowded housing, um, and you know the data shows that that it, like for some of the days where the numbers go up significantly, it's, been, it's because it's being passed on to their kids. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, lots of um, really clear indicators of the uh, racism, both institutional and otherwise. I mean, uh, even inherent. that. Bro. Even that, it's almost reported as a good thing if the cases um, are known because they're connected to close contacts or whatever. Like what that, like what you're saying is what that actually means is that's the same family, it like just like ripping through entire families and communities because of things like overcrowded housing. And it's like if we had um, a press gallery that wasn't actually just exclusively like upper middle class white people almost, um, put with some notable exceptions and really good reporters like Mikey Sherman and stuff. But you know. Putting that aside, it's just like um, the, the fundamental framing around this whole response, um, and because of the groupthink that you have between politicians and the media, that then means that it's a self-reinforcing cycle um, that actually just completely marginalises um, the most at-risk communities. One of the worst examples of that that I've seen um, was just yesterday, and and massive thank you to the, to the family involved here for for doing their part. But it was something like uh, COVID family ask people to get in support of the Vaxathon. And it's this, it was this family, who, all of whom had had, co had COVID. Um, and they were like talking about how bad it was uh, and saying, please go and get vaxxed today. And you're just like, how is this a, a sideshow? How is this one of the first stories I'm seeing about how an entire family got COVID um, and putting them front and centre? Um, and it's not even really doing that. What it's doing is uh, showcasing the Vaxathon. But, you know, there are a number of families that are like that, um, some of who have, have lost family members to this. Yeah, and those stories aren't being told nearly enough. 
that's yeah it's really i guess it's it's both a political and media um centering kind of thing right i i'm sick of that word but it is about kind of communicating in a way that gets beyond the bubbles um as you're saying and yeah if you're if you're not someone who fits into the kind of uh middle upper class nuclear family preferably land holding educated uh liberal urban group then there's not much for you really in the way that they're kind of tailoring their messaging and communicating so yeah it makes it hard to be optimistic but um, I mean, yeah, hopefully some whole, of these new messages will be working better the whole rollout of this, the whole vaccine mandate stuff and that as well was a perfect example of that because mm. you know like you just see in an online commentary and that kind of thing there's just like people are completely incredulous as to why um um as to why there might be hesitancy as as, as to why people might not trust um and so yeah it's just I, I um because you know if you look at some of the leading maori public health experts um they'll be some of the strongest advocates for some of the most strictest restrictions um and yet they will also um, in a number of areas um, opposed vaccine mandates. Yeah, um, yeah. Probably not for areas like, you know, the health workforce and that kind of thing. There's some obvious examples. I don't, so like um, some vaccine mandates absolutely make sense, but we're going to end up in a position where um, Māori are probably the majority or at least um, disproportionately represented among the unvaccinated. Um, and there is a class of society that is essentially advocating for them to be permanently excluded from society, more so than they already are, um, yeah, putting yeah. that aside. Um, but, you know, and from leading, you know, establishment commentators, um, some of the rhetoric is actually appalling to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, like not wanting them to be able to work at all. Um, and then you have some of the most extreme elements advocating for benefit cuts as well. So it's like, then you're literally saying that you shouldn't be able to live if you choose yeah. not to be vaccinated, um, you may as well force it into someone's arm rather than go to all of those levels to mask the fact that you're actually forcing someone to do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's ex- it's extremely cruel and punitive um, philosophically. Like this is this is what I was saying on um, Twitter the other day about yeah, if you're not if you're not mandating it for everybody, but you are saying that to hold a job in all these different sectors, then you have to have it. Then you're you know you're planning a society in which unvaccinated people can only fill certain niches. And then you have to be thinking about what those niches are. Like, I don't think we should be um, kind of glossing over such a massive uh, (laughs) kind of planning of population planning strategy, essentially. Yeah, and especially when you take it back to the vaccine numbers, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, unionists just forgetting that they're unionists. It's like people forgetting that workers' rights are even a thing. The fact that unions fought hard for the fact that you can tell your employer you can refuse to give your employer your you know your health information that kind of thing and i'm not saying that some of those things don't need to necessarily adjust um to to adapt in this new environment that we're living in but to fundamentally just throw out workers rights um is just you know it's just disgraceful and um the fact that it's really exposed how much um upper middle class white people are willing to accept in terms of the erosion of fundamental rights and accountabilities like I mean, even the fact that the Greens are still voting for, for example, um, supposedly a left-wing party, still voting for these public um, health response bills that allow for the warrantless search of all private property at any time. Like, mm. you know, at, at the order of the Director General of Health, like they're basically given like, you know, extreme autocratic powers to the Director General of Health. And while he might not be using them right now, the Thank, fact that they're sitting on our books is, is actually pretty disturbing. 
And I yeah, think sure. um, more more commonly used uh, to access Marae than anywhere else. Yes, yeah, specifically referenced, um, specifically targeted, um, but the, the cultural, economic, spiritual center of Maori life. Um, and, you know, like, I just can't believe how little outcry there has been about a lot of the provisions actually, and, and particularly the enforcement provisions in the, in the COVID response act. Yeah, yeah. That was, I mean, we discussed that uh, early on. I think I had a, um, a special episode with Thomas Beagle from oh, um, cool. Civil, Civil Liberties, uh, yeah. like quite early on. Um, and yeah, discussing that and about how, you know, there's some good stuff and some bad stuff, but fundamentally um, in, that, in that initial um, bill, what we agreed about is that this isn't something that should become normal. Like when, when there's an emergency, there are some things that even fairly kind of left libertarian leaning people would generally agree that, you know, you don't have to act the same in a pandemic as when you're not in the pandemic, but then write that down, like make that part of it, have a sunset clause, have fade well, outs for some of these autocratic kind of and, things that they say they need. And it is becoming normal now. Like it seems the yeah. warrant researchers thing has almost seemed to become like um, a provision that, um, that bureaucrats and legislation drafters just automatically put in there. Like, I mean, there's been a number of um, pieces of legislation recently, like the water services bill, for example. Well, that was a, that was obscene. <laughs> yeah, and that again specifically targeted Marae. Um, that has been amended through the select committee process, so now requires consent um, rather than warrantless searches. But um, the fact that that even was in the initial draft, or it's of course in the terrorism legislation that's got warrantless search stuff all through it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's just like the fact that we have allowed this fundamental um, right in um, Western democracies just to basically going to the wayside um, is, is pretty scary. Hey, we're just about coming to time. Were there any final thoughts that you wanted to share, Jack, while we have you here? Uh, no, I don't think so. It's been an awesome conversation. Thanks, guys. Um, the, I mean, there's been lots that we haven't spoken about, um, but really I think what we have spoken about goes to show um, the situation. And, um, yeah, so I think the people who I'm working with who are on the front line of this response, like, it's just about time everyone started listening to them, give them the data they need, give them the resources they need, um, let them lead the response um, and actually just step out of the way. Uh, because at the moment we're in the fight for our lives, um, for the survival um, of our communities. And even if we are taking an optimistic outlook. So um, that would be my, my um, really my only message is, is actually just support the people on the front lines who are trying to um, uh, keep our people alive. And where can yeah. people find you if they want to hear more from you, Jack? Oh, well, uh, I guess on Twitter um, is, prob is probably the place to go if you want to hear more from me. Um, but um, I'm not really the person you should be listening to, to be perfectly honest. Um, <laughs> listen to listen to the Māori public health experts. Awesome. Do you want to close us out, Philip? Yeah, kia ora. Thanks, Jack. That was great. Um, resource the people who need resourcing. <laughs> How can yeah. it be, right? Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Kyle. Uh, thanks, me. Great work. And yeah, that's been one of 200 for another week. We'll catch you later. Kia Relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams. Is the lie aspirational? Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational
keeping your glass up full You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism